You're listening to The Conversation with Adam Weber, lead pastor of Embrace Church and author of Love Has a Name. Hey friends, I hope this finds you well today. It is Adam. You are tuning in to the conversation and I am grateful that you are. Gosh, whether this is your first time or you've been with me for a long time, I am excited that you are here. If you haven't done so yet, go to Apple Podcast, go to Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and click the subscribe button. I'd also be so grateful if you'd be willing to leave an honest review. If you like the podcast, let me know. If you don't like the podcast, let me know. But uh, again, I am grateful for every single one of you that are tuning in. Hey, today's conversation, not an overstatement. This might be my number one favorite interview to date. I interviewed longtime Christian author Philip Yancey. He is one of the best-selling Christian authors of all time, and this conversation was so good. Specifically, if you've been hurt by the church, if you've been hurt by Christians, or if you've been tempted to walk away from Jesus for whatever reason, this interview is for you. If you have a loved one that is in that place, they're upset with Christians, or they're kind of on their way walking away from Jesus, I genuinely believe that Philip's words will encourage you, will uplift you, will bring you or that person back to Jesus. He just shares so candidly and honestly and openly. I genuinely believe that it will encourage you in a wonderful, wonderful way. That's enough of me talking. As always, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. I'm here with Philip Yancey. I still can't believe I'm here with Philip Yancey. Philip, I want to welcome you to the conversation today. A huge honor that you're with us. Thank you so much, Adam. I, um, I've been looking forward to this and see where we go. Yes. So you have yet another book coming out. If you haven't read one of Philip's books, I'm not sure where you've been the last 20, 20 years plus, but you got a new book coming out called Where the Light Fell. And this time it's a memoir talking about your own story. This book, you really felt like this is one that you were put on earth to write. Where did this book come from inside of you? And if, if you just want to go from there. I have dropped little stories here and there in various ones of my books, but there are a lot that I haven't told. I've been just waiting, waiting for the perspective you need to do that, and waiting because there are family members involved who are going to be affected, so I've tried to be careful on that. But if I look back on my life, I guess I'd say I've been cursed with some of the worst that the church has to offer and blessed with some of the best. <laughs> I, I grew up in... Uh, one of these angry, legalistic, fundamentalist, racist churches in the South. When you're a kid, you know, you just believe everything the adults tell you. And in those days, you you could live without ever meeting a non-Christian. So everybody I knew believed the same thing. And we believed there would be maybe 100, 120 of us in heaven, probably no more. But those were the people in our church, you know, we were sure about them. And then later, I found out some of the things that the church told me was was, were simply wrong, racism being right at the top. I was in Atlanta growing up during the civil rights movement days, and we were on the wrong side of virtually every issue going on back then. And when I went, uh, started expanding my world a bit through reading, through personal encounters in teenage days, I realized the church had lied to me. 
it had taught me doctrinaire that uh, black people were inferior. They were a race cursed by God and segregation was the way to go. I mean, it was, it was that stark. And the pastor would call Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Lucifer Kuhn from the pulpit. It was that kind of church. And, and when I realized the church had lied to me about race, I thought, well, maybe they lied to me about the Bible. Maybe they lied to me about Jesus. And so I went through a, a process that has taken a long time. And that's what I've been able to do as a writer, to go back and figure out what's worth keeping, where, where is the kernel of truth here, and what have, what have human beings added to it that may be completely wrong. And so I started with... Uh, with my own questions, where is God when it hurts? Disappointment with God were a couple of my first books, and you can kind of tell where I was <laughs> just by the titles. And it took me a long time of uh, reflection and, and spiritual growth to, to approach more of the core of the faith, books about Jesus, about grace, about prayer. But I feel blessed looking back that I've had the uh, just been able to make a living, really, by exploring the doctrine, you know, what what does the Bible really say? What should we believe? It's different than what I was brought up, and I guess that's probably true of everybody. We find certain things just aren't the same as what we were taught. Yeah, no, that's that's so good, Philip. You start out with sharing a powerful story about your own father and finding out how he had passed away. Can you tell us some more about that story? how that impacted you, good, bad, and otherwise. And I know that's something so personal, but if you'd be willing to share that. Well, a pandemic was raging in the United States when I was born. It was a pandemic of polio. Now, my parents were were a young Christian couple. My father had been in the Navy, had a dramatic conversion, and he decided to be a missionary in Africa after the war was over. And so they were raising support. They had a a group of 5,000 people who were praying for them, supporting them. Then he got polio, 23 years old. Polio was mostly for little children, but he was one of the unlucky adults. And he was in an iron lung for two months at a charity hospital, didn't get very good treatment, was miserable, couldn't move at all, couldn't breathe on his own, could barely move his head a little bit. But But of course, we were forbidden to go into the polio ward. He's lying in there, an open ward with all these iron lungs making noise all day and all night, you know, because they're machines that are doing the compression and the vacuum to to allow his lungs to expand and contract. The group of Christians who were praying for him decided uh, that could not possibly be God's will for him to be paralyzed or to die when he had such a bright future ahead of him. And they became convinced that he would be healed. They all prayed in that direction and became so convinced that they removed him from the iron lung, took him out of the hospital against medical advice, and he went to a chiropractic center. And I knew that part, but it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I found the faith healing part, that he he moved from the hospital because he believed he would be healed, and others did too. I found it by coming across a newspaper clipping with a reporter's story about this brave pastor who had been paralyzed, who took a leap of faith and believed he would be healed and felt there was progress. And I looked at the date of the newspaper and it was nine days before he died. So here was this powerful secret in my family that uh, 
he he died because of a mistaken theology. Actually, you know, he believed, and the people around him believed God's will and spoke for God, but they happened to be wrong. And what we believe, I, I later wrote books about pain. What we believe about pain and suffering has has a lot to. It's important to get that right. Well, my mother was now a widow. She had a three-year-old son, my brother, and a one-year-old son, me. We both suspended our faith for a time in teenage years because of the churches we were growing up in. I came back. He did not. And so it's a family story, really, stories I've, I've waited a long time to tell. But I, I like to think of it as a, as a prequel to the books I've written, books on pain and suffering, books on prayer. Yeah, Philip, if I can go back to your dad's situation, again, I know this is very personal. I, I just got a question the other day. I thought God had told me that my, my brother-in-law would be healed, and yet he hasn't been. And the person just said, how do I explain that? Like, how, what, what are your thoughts about that? What do you do with that when you feel like you're, you see one thing in Scripture or maybe even sense a deep sense of it, not even in a toxic faith sort of way, but you feel the sense of right. God is going to heal my father. I, I believe in miracles. I've seen a few, and I've talked to doctors and asked them, have you ever seen a verified, you know, supernatural direct intervention miracle? And, and most of them will kind of think for a minute and they'll say, yeah, uh, one or two. There was this woman back and they'll tell me a story. And I believe in miracles, but they're, they're miracles. They're not ordinaries. When I pray, when a friend of mine comes down with cancer, actually uh, today, one of my best friends is being operated on for cancer, and, and I go like a child to the father and say, God, here's what I want. I want my friend to be healed. I don't want him to have to go through all this radiation and chemotherapy and all that stuff, but I know we live on a fallen world and, and things don't always get answered the way we want. I just want to tell you, I really want my friend to be healed. and. If he's not, I want him to be able to get all the help he could use in getting through this and that you would definitely speak to his spirits, give him courage, give him faith, give him trust, confidence in the doctors and trust in you. Uh, as soon as I cross a line and say, I know my friend is going to be healed, then I set myself up for the kind of disappointment that happened and had major consequences in my own family. I've spent so much time in the book of Job, because if anybody had a right to question God, it would be Job. And at the end, all these friends of Job had these theories about why things were happening, and God just kind of blew them away, dismissed them. And he said, Job's my hero, because he hung in there even when he had no reason left. Kind of going on that route, talk about this pain and suffering for a minute, and a proper perspective of that that we should have as Christ followers. I think it's it's important to start by saying that God is on the side of the sufferer. Very often we think by instinct, if something bad happens, oh, well, I must have done something wrong. God's punishing me. And I just don't see that in the Bible. I mean, the clearest picture of how God views this planet is Jesus. And that's why Jesus came to earth, to show us what God was like. And every time he was asked every time he met a person who was in, in deep suffering, whether it was leprosy or, or blindness or paralysis or death, <laughs> he, he would actually, he would heal them. And, and yet he didn't make that his, his major concern on earth 
he didn't eliminate pain and suffering from earth. He just responded to the people in front of him. And I think he was saying God's desire is that we be fully functioning, healthy human beings. And every time Jesus had the chance, he would restore a person so that they are healthy, functioning human beings, the way they were designed to live. At the same time, Jesus was aware that we live on a planet that, that is not, as he taught us to pray, it's not a place where God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a lot of things going on down here that displease God, that grieve God. And Jesus cried when his friend died. He cried when he thought about what was going to happen to his city of Jerusalem. He cried when he faced death himself. He didn't say, watch me. I'm going to show you how to suffer. I'm going to be Captain America, you know, <laughs> quite quite the opposite. He threw himself on the ground and pled, "Is let this cup pass if there's any other way. But then he realized there was no other way. And he said, it's your will, God, not mine, Whatever whatever you think. In my career as a journalist and writer, I've met some amazing people. Johnny Erickson comes immediately to mind, who uh, was paralyzed. And she had every faith healer person I know pray for her. Catherine Kuhlman, Oral Roberts, Billy Graham. They all prayed for her healing, and she didn't get it. But when I look at what she's done in the last 50 years by being a, a prophet to the church, reminding us of disability, I came up with this slogan, Adam, that pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. Ugh. I mean, it would have been a great if, if Johnny, as a 22-year-old, had suddenly been healed and could go on with her life. But it didn't happen. And we've got a choice when, when these bad things happen. We've got a choice of either turning away from God, which some people do. My brother is one. Or you can turn toward God and say, I don't understand this and I don't like it but you've promised that you can take the worst thing that happens to us and somehow make good out of it. And Paul was so clear about that in Romans 8, because he said, he didn't say only good things will happen, but he'll say, no matter what happens, it can be used for your good. And then he goes on to talk about his own story, which included prisons and torture and, and snake bite and shipwreck and all sorts of things. And yet he's looking back and say, I, I can see how all these things work together for good. And I have to say, in writing a memoir, I concluded I there were things I certainly wish had not happened, but now I can see how they all contributed to the person I am, and nothing went wasted. Even the the detours, even the mistakes, even the the painful parts, they were useful. God God will use those things in all of us in ways that we can't foresee at the time. Philip, every word you just shared was 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 beautiful. Looking at your story in your upbringing specifically and the pressure even put on you of kind of being, okay, you are now going to take dad's role. I mean, you had so yeah. many different reasons to walk away from God. What were things that brought you back to following Jesus? Great question. Great question. You hear testimonies of people who say, I was saved from alcohol. I was saved from drugs. Mine would be, I was saved from the church. <laughs> I was so saturated. I was fed up to hear my mother was a Bible teacher. She couldn't afford babysitters. So I'd go and hear the same Bible stories five days in a row. And then uh, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday revivals, you know, just, and then I went to a Bible college. So I was just crammed full and then went through a, a real crisis of faith and, and, just suspended it for a while. I, I felt like I ditched it at the time. 
the name of this book that we're talking about is Where the Light Fell. And that is a quote from St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell from the sun's rays. So that would be my story. Uh, I had been scorched by the sun. You know, I, I came out of that church believing that God was this scowling uh, killjoy, just looking for somebody to smash, you know. I mean, that, that really was the image of God that I had. It was an image based on fear. And I, I didn't turn to God. I was, I was turning away from God. But the light fell on other places. There's no way I could have responded to a tract by Billy Graham or reading the Bible. I was fed up to, to the neck with that stuff and had seen it misused and seen it abused and, and wrongly taught. But the light fell for me in three ways. One was the beauties of nature. Growing up in a dysfunctional family, my brother Solus was music. He was a great musician. Mine was the woods. I would go out and hike in the woods and dig in logs for insects and chase butterflies and listen to birds and follow squirrels, you know, all that stuff. I, I felt at peace there. I was a creature and nobody was yelling at me. Nobody was telling me what to do. You know, I just, I felt at home. So nature was was a key place and classical music. My brother was brilliantly talented. I much less talented, but at least I knew how to appreciate good music. And then romantic love. And those three things together started me on a path where I realized that I had been lied to about God. Uh, the church had misrepresented God to me. He wasn't this scowling killjoy. In fact, I, I like to quote this statement from G.K. Chesterton, who said that the worst moment for an atheist is, is when he feels a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. <sighs> and... That's how I felt. I, I was experiencing joy for the first time in, the, in those things, in nature, music, and love. And I realized somehow that doesn't measure up with the God I've been taught. I wanted to be grateful, but I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> I needed somebody to thank. And I tell the book uh, a full story that I've never told before. It's a, it's a story of my conversion experience that came to me, I'd have to say, undesired and unexpected. I really wasn't reaching out to God. God just kind of whopped me up the side of the head, but in the most gentle, loving way, <laughs> it, it changed everything. My life changed completely from that moment on. And I, the reason I haven't told it is because whenever you tell a conversion story, then other people think, well, I never had an experience like that. And you're right. You know, God deals with this differently. So I'm not holding it up as as a model. You should follow this. I'm just saying this is what happened. I'm telling the true story of my life. And that was the seminal event of my life. And I can't, I, I can't possibly write a memoir without making that the hinge. Are you willing to share a, a part of it or how that came to be? I was at a Bible college and we were given an assignment, this kind of assignment you get in Bible colleges, where the professor said, write a paper about a time when God spoke to you through the Bible. When I was a kid, I would give these testimonies and I was the star Sunday school pupil and all that. And I, I made up stuff and I, I just didn't know what was real and what was fake. So finally, I just decided probably God has never spoken to me. It was probably just psychological pressure or something. So my first response was, what in the world am I going to write about? I, I don't want to make up another story. You know, I'm tired of doing that. I was in a prayer meeting, uh, three guys and I, we were, we were assigned this Christian service assignment and we had a weekly prayer meeting. And. 
Joe would always, every week, Joe would pray, and then uh, Craig would pray, and Chris would pray, and then they'd wait, oh, about 10 seconds, and I, and I didn't pray. <laughs> this happened week after week after week. But they were my friends, and they never ribbed me about it. You know, they just kind of <laughs> prayed for me, I suppose. But this one time, I started, I started praying. I said, God, and, you know, the room got very tense because I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> and then I said, uh, we're supposed to be going to convert these heathens at the university. And as you know, I don't care if all of those 10,000 people go to hell. In fact, I don't even care if I go to hell. And this is a prayer, you know, and the room got very tense. I could have been offering child sacrifice or doing witchcraft, and it wouldn't have gotten more of a reaction there. But they were quiet. They're my friends. And then um, I guess I would have to say I had a vision. It was because it came. I don't know where it came from. It didn't come from me. I hadn't certainly planned to do this. And the vision was of the parable of the Good Samaritan. No preacher would say this is what uh, Jesus meant hermeneutically when he gave that parable. But what I saw was the Samaritan reaching down to this bloody, you know, mud-covered wretch in the ditch who had been assaulted. And then the faces changed. The face of the Samaritan was actually Jesus. And I was the one in the ditch. And every time Jesus would reach down... I would spit in his face. I mean, I actually saw that spitting in his face. And it was just one of these shocking things where I I saw who I was. I thought I was this arrogant, I was this arrogant guy who humiliated the professors by asking questions they couldn't answer and and would read books like Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell so that everybody could see, you know, what an unbeliever I was. And 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 then I realized I was probably the neediest one of all. It was a revelation, and I, I wrote just a kind of one-line note to, to my girlfriend, who became my wife, saying, I may have had the first authentic religious experience in my life, but I won't know for a few days. <laughs> I expected it to wear off, and it didn't wear off. It was that hinge moment that changed everything. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's absolutely beautiful. To the person who has walked away from God, whether it's a 20-something, a 60-something, a, a former pastor or whoever that's walked away from God, what would be your counsel to them? I have a nephew in Virginia, and in Virginia, they, they've got this particular kind of juice. And underneath the bottle cap, they include a little slogan. And he sent me this bottle cap one time, and it, it went like this. An idea cannot be held responsible for those who believe it. And I thought about that in terms of the church. God's goal is getting his family back. That's the whole story of the Bible. God loves us. God created us. He gave us this unbelievable planet that we live on and have trashed pretty much. And and yet um, the story of the Bible is capsulated in the, in the story of the prodigal son, and where Jesus depicts God as the father who is on the porch every day looking into the horizon could be could today be the day could today be the day and for whatever reason god chose the church people like us ordinary flawed dense people look at the disciples you know people like us and and said the best way to get across god's love is human to human so i'm i'm giving you that that mission 
the last thing he said was go into all the world and preach the gospel. Here's the good news. Take it. And what a mess we've made of it in some ways. But in other ways, I, I travel around the world. I've been to 85 countries, Adam, um, mainly invited by my publishers in those countries. Wherever I go where there have Christians been, missionaries, you see a string of orphanages and clinics and hospitals and education places and people fighting sexual trafficking and digging wells and feeding the hungry. And, and in many of those places, you say, what is a Christian? Well, I don't know, but it's somebody that when I'm sick, they, they make me well. When I'm hungry, they give me food. And in, in a lot of places in the world, it really is still good news. And in the United States, we, we, we have this great heritage of being a religious free country for people to worship as, as, they, as they can or as they wish. And yet it, after a while, it became kind of it's become kind of an institution. And uh, we get we get like every institution, you get in these power struggles and hurt feelings and all that. And and we kind of lose sight of what it's all about. It's all about a loving God and an incredibly awesomely loving God wanting to get his family back, wanting to reconnect in the deepest possible way so that we can live the kind of free and abundant life that Jesus promised. And, you know, the church I grew up in, there was nothing free about it. There was nothing abundant about it. And how, how do we twist what Jesus gave us into, well, we're, we're human beings, and it's always been true. But every once in a while, a light turns on and you realize, oh, that's what it's all about. For me, three of the books I wrote were with a doctor, Dr. Paul Brand, who was a leprosy specialist, Fearfully and Wonderfully, is one of those books. He was just a prince of a guy who served among some of the lowliest people on the entire planet. These are people in the lowest caste, used to be called untouchables in India, who had leprosy. That's as low as you get. They kicked out of their own villages, their own homes. And yet here was this brilliant orthopedic surgeon who gave his life to them. Not once did I ever hear from him, oh, what a sacrificial thing I've done, what a martyr. He was the most joyful, thankful person I've ever known. And Jesus told us that if you just follow me, it'll feel like you're giving away your life, but actually that's how you find it. <laughs> and I've seen that again and again in my career as a journalist. The, the people I respect most are those people who say, I'm just gonna do what Jesus told me, and other people are gonna think it's crazy. And then years later, they say, that was the greatest move I ever made. It seemed like I was giving away my life, but that's how I found it. And I, I've just seen that true so many times. Philip, thank you endlessly. Again, the new book is Where the Light Fell. Go get a copy. Buy a copy for the person who's maybe wrestling with God, is struggling with understanding who God really is, maybe even a friend or a family member who's totally walked away from the Lord. Uh, Philip, I thank God for the ways that he's worked in and through you for years uh, to impact so many different people. Again, go get this book. Philip, a huge honor to have you on the conversation today. I enjoyed it. I'd love to be in your church sometime, Adam. The Conversation with Adam Weber is produced by the Converge Podcast Network and proudly distributed on Faith Radio. Special thanks to these partners. For more information on this show, visit convergepodcast.com.
This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.